Numbers chapter 30, we're in the wilderness preparing ourselves for entry into the promised land. And this is such a beautiful, culturally or politically incorrect message. I'm going to sound like an old guy. Here, whimper, snappers. I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do. So Numbers chapter 30. Read along with me if you would, please. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing in which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all of her vows shall stand. And every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. If indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand and her agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips by which she bound herself and the Lord will release her. Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. If she has vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, <coughs> then all her vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, but then whatever proceeds from her lips or proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will release her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response, whatever to her from day to day, and then he confirms all her vows or all of her agreements that bind her, he confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he's heard them, well, then he shall bear guilt. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, between a father and his daughter, in her youth, in her father's house. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, here we are again. In your word, beautiful, comfortable in this nice, warm building, majestic and glorious. And here we are expectant, expecting you to speak to us or not. You know how we came in. 
And I know some came in here expecting today for you to grab a hold of our hearts and do work so beautiful and so so divine, so profound that only you can get the credit for it. Speaking to places so personal, so intimate, that we don't even speak it to ourselves, but desperately in need of your light to shine upon it. So do so today. There may be those, Lord, who have also come in here really not knowing what to expect. Surprise them in all of the best of ways that today they would encounter you and they would have to reconcile that there is a living, risen God who loves them and wants them, has a plan for their lives, and is simply looking for permission. And Lord, I pray that no matter where we're at today, we would encounter you, every one of us just where you want us. May we walk out of here infinitely more in love with you than we came in. Even if we came in not believing we could get even more, any more in love with you, then blow our minds. By the power of your Spirit, speak to every one of us intimately, perfectly, profoundly, individually and corporately. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And may we have so much fun in your word now. Thank you, Lord. Bless this time, I pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, say, would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Stand on the word of God. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Context. If you're new to scripture... This probably sounds pretty wonky. Because of where we've emphasized things prior to this point, I imagine looking at this and going, what the heck have I gotten myself into? Once upon a time, roughly about the 1400s BC, there were a group of people that were slaves in Egypt, and they had been slaves in Egypt for four decades, I'm sorry, for four centuries. It's all they'd known. It's all that their parents had known. It's all that their grandparents had known. And God had promised in that fourth generation they would be removed out of there with great riches, and it's exactly how it worked out, of course. They had been under the hand of the enemy, and what that meant is that they were submitting themselves, whether by choice or force, to one who existed to destroy them. They didn't have much say or any at all. Their life was empty and futile, and they know it. And the harder they worked, the more futile it was. And the more they got, the more it was worth nothing. Just like many of us, we know the story. We've spent all of our time and energy and creativity and everything else that we may think we've possessed, only to find ourselves infinitely less in every degree spent and broken. But God promised deliverance. He didn't just promise removal. Removal means just get me out of my situation and perhaps for some of us it's been so bad that's all that we really cared about. God, get me out of this relationship and you get out of it and you wind up with another one just as bad as the first. What a great thing that is, huh? God, get me out of this addiction, and you wind up out of that addiction and into a brand new one you didn't even think that you could ever be addicted to. 
God, get me out of this horrible lifestyle, and you find yourself in one just as bad. You know the story. But God didn't promise removal. He promised deliverance. That may sound like a fancy Christian term, but let's make it what it really is, just a simple term. To deliver something, you should probably know where. If I were to turn to you and say, hey, could you deliver this? You would be smart to say where and not just take it and run off with it. I would be a little nervous. So you call for a pizza and you'd say, I'd like to have a pizza delivered. And the guy says, perfect, bring the pizza here. And you're like, no, no, you're the pizza place, right? And imagine the guy makes the pizza and then he goes, and he puts some oil on it and he dances around and he slays it across the board. No, 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 no. Deliverance means it goes somewhere. That's the point. If we're going to have a deliverance ministry, the question is, where are you going? Not just what you want to get out of. Real deliverance means you're going to go from someplace to another. Scripture makes something so different from the rest of everything else. Everything else, it's like, look, at I just life just sucks. I hate it. Get me out of it. And you don't even care where you go. That's the point of fleeing is just getting out of where you're at. But God never promised that. He promised deliverance. He said, I'll take you out of the kingdom of darkness into the son that I love. Out of the hand of bondage into the arms of the son I love. See, the whole point of it was not just that you would leave where you were, but that you would enter a place he has that's so infinitely better. But the place that he has for you, well, there's a route in between, and that route in between is rather spartan. It's actually rather simple and plain and empty. And the reason is quite simple, because if God's going to rebuild the house, he's not going to remodel the house. He's not going to relocate the house. He's not going to redecorate the house. He's going to rebuild the house. He needs to take that baby down. Now, you've seen him around town. That thing that's a landmark is an eyesore, and you kind of know sooner or later the ball's coming. And you see it, and all of a sudden the big walls come up, and you're like, oh, you know, this thing that used to be like furniture land. Some of you are familiar, right? Or furniture city. Remember that? Right? It was like a block long there in Tottenham and Whetstone. Right? And then you drive by, and you're like, there's no furniture there. I don't know what kind of land this is. But sooner or later, you just kind of know. It was a one-level thing, and it was kind of old and rickety. And sooner or later, walls came up that said, new, you know, three- and four-bedroom apartments, you know, and three- and four-bedroom flats. It's going to be a great place. Well, you're going to, you don't go, well, I wonder how they're going to fit all of that in Furniture City. You know, they're going to take that baby down. And when God takes it down to start and lay a new foundation, well, things have to be removed. That becomes the problem here. See, understand that time in the wilderness is really simply a time where God opens up and removes from our hands what's in them so we could put what he really wants to put in them. But there has to be a time in between where there's something removed from our hands. And at that moment, we can panic. We can look and go, oh, my hands are empty. I've never been empty before. I've never not been in a relationship. I've never not been stoned. I can't remember ever being, you know, it's like that kind of thing. You're like, God, why are you taking all of this away? Because God's taking it away so we could put better. God is not a God of knots. He's a God of instead of, and God doesn't remove, he replaces. Please know that. So there's this time in between, beloved. And in that time in between, God is going to rebuild and reinvent And he deserves to be the architect of our reinvention. That's the point of this. Now, please hear me in this. There's only so much you can do with an old model sometimes. 
Now, you can take a look, and I understand that as a recording studio engineer for a time, where we, always, we often say you're only as good as your source material. And you hear that person, and they come in, and they sound like you're strangling a goose, right? And they're like, ah, and then they go, and then you play it back, and they're like, that sounds terrible. And I'm like, I am so glad we agree. And they look at you like, you're the problem, right? They're like, well, what do you, uh, what'd you do? I'm like, I just recorded honestly. You know, you're putting on makeup on someone, and you look, and you're like, mm, you know, I'm not too sure how much it's going to take before this is really going to work. Now, by the time they're done, they can't, like, pick up their face because, you know, it's dragging it around. And the point is simple. You're only good as your source material. The good news is God's not slapping a coat of paint on anything. God's putting on a whole new material, whole new source material. But for that to happen, God's got to get rid of the old first. And that's why faith is so fundamental. Faith sounds such a fancy Christian term. It really just means trust. And if you don't trust God, well, then that time is going to be a real time of real panic fear, all the things, by the way, that demonstrate you really don't trust him like you say you do. You're like, oh, God, I trust you. And then God takes something away. You're like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Listen, God is not obliged to tell you what he's doing. As a matter of fact, I've learned sometimes the greatest way to display faith is when you don't get it. And so somewhere in the middle of all of this, God starts preparing us. But again, this is the route to deliverance. This isn't the permanent location. That's the good news. If you're in that place where you feel like everything's fleeing from you, like you drop a rock in a puddle and everything flees from that center, well, if you feel like that's, you're, well, praise God, God's at work. The good news is once those things get free, God's got a plan to fill them. But if you want to go and grab something else right away, well, then you're never going to get what God has for you until you trust him enough to let go. But on the other side of it is a place of great fruitfulness. And please hear me, it's not just heaven. Because if it was just heaven, God might have, the moment you said yes to Jesus, might as well have just killed you, right? Let's face it. If Jesus died just to send you to heaven, you're like, yeah, all right, Jesus, you can have me. He's like, bam, you're done, right? But obviously there's more to life than that. God wants to use us and he wants to develop this relationship even now. That's part of the beauty of it. So please hear me. We go through this season where God starts to remove all of this stuff, but ultimately his place is fruitfulness. This place where God actually uses us to be an influence on the rest of the world around us. A place of overflow. Do you even know what that's like to actually live in a state of overflow? Where all you want is to serve and love people and you can't even believe it. You look at yourself and go, who in the world is that guy? He's pretty cool. Because he's not you anymore. He's Jesus. Now please understand, in the midst of that, God is going to reinvent everything. That includes the way we view things, the way we prioritize things, the way our society works. And he lays out some gorgeous standards that, because what we drag over from that place of bondage is the mindset of a slave. And God starts releasing us from this stuff so that we can actually embrace him wholeheartedly. Ten years ago, we had the privilege of adopting a beautiful little girl from China. She had been there for 13 months. And her routine was very much the routine of where she had come from. But she had a pretty radical change of life the moment she stepped into our arms. For the first time in her life, she got fed more than she could eat. And she proved it. Every time she could, she ate until she threw up. 
we had to finally go, okay, that's, you know, kind of like that bartender, all right, buddy, you've had enough. Well, that was what we were doing. It didn't matter what it was. And to this day, she can, don't go to a Brazilian barbecue with me and her. She'll double eat me. And I can eat pretty good. But they're like, I mean, they're just bringing in cows and grilling the whole thing in front of her. She's like, okay, give me the next one. I mean, it's just amazing how much this little girl can eat. And the point of it is this, is that we had the privilege of getting her at 13 months. And I don't want to in any way kind of, dis, you know, to air my precious girl stuff, but please hear me. What if she were 13 years old instead of 13 months? The, well, the, the problem with acclimating at that point is then you have 13 years of history where you came from. Does that make sense? And acclimating is a pretty rough thing. I had a friend, on the other hand, who had adopted a little boy. And the boy that he had adopted come from a very, very poor community. And in the poor community that he came from, well, this boy was a street kid. And he had reached out to this whole community. And to be honest, the mother just came and gave him the boy. Said, you know what? I, I don't want him. You can just have him. And he's like, sure. What do I need to do? And the kid couldn't believe the child. There we go. Couldn't believe that somebody would want him at all. But this family had a little bit of money, they, and they worked, and, and they, and because they had a little bit of money, and the government smelled that they had a little bit of money, they paid infinitely more than they could have, because the government saw this as a prime opportunity to clean up. But they finally got this boy after I don't know over a year and a half. They finally got this boy home, and when they got this boy home, he was probably I don't know, probably somewhere between seven and ten. And they would offer him food, of course, at every meal, and he would refuse to eat. And he would eat very, very little, and always with suspicion. And like, what's, what's going on with our boy? We, we need to make sure you eat. Finally, they went into his room about three weeks after, after getting him, and his room smelled terrible. See, at night when the parents were sleeping, he had gone into the refrigerator and taken everything he could and stolen it and put it underneath his bed. Because that's what he knew. What he knew was how to beg, borrow, and steal. And so he, it was hard for him to realize the home he was in. Does that make sense? Now, today, by the way, that young man is in ministry. And he actually has adopted a handful of children himself. It's amazing what the Lord has done with Kevin. But please hear me in this. The acclimation period is a rough one because what he had known was life. It wasn't like part of life. It wasn't your job. It was life. Does that make sense? Well, please hear me. So was it for us. I was adopted at 19 by Jesus, by God the Father. That means I was a 19-year-old punk, and I was really good at being bad. That's nothing I'm proud of. Some of you know that. Some of you were adopted even later in life than that. So you know the old life very well. So when God starts laying out things, and the first thing you go is, well, this kind of offends my better senses, the question I start asking is, does it offend the old world you would have lived in or the world that you live in now if you've accepted Christ? Does that make sense? Because I understand that growing up fighting and just fighting for whatever I needed to in Chicago as a kid, the things that I have in Christ are so different from that. That for me to even just accept a gift, kindness or love bestowed upon me simply because someone is kind, really took a lot of discipline. Because if somebody looked like they were being kind, they were selling something or reaching for my pocket. So for me to actually have that kind of trust was a really rare thing. 
And you know that because there's all kinds of things in that old world that are rough, like the word love. You know that's not a good word up there. Back in that world, love means taking, love means violating, love means keeping from you, love means lying, and love means deception, and love means unfaithfulness, love means everything you don't want something good to be. And then someone, then you reread, Jesus loves you. When people say, Jesus loves you, and there's a part of you that gets angry, not even because of the Jesus part, but because of the loves part, because you had that word defined in the old world you came from. Does that make sense? But God's intent is not just to remove you from that old place. It's to put you in a place so beautiful and profound and so rich in his arms that all you do is overflow. But can you imagine the reprogram? Do you see why he has to reinvent us? Because if God just tried to slap a new coat of paint on us, and we would, all we would be is an old world kid. And God says that the old generation has to pass away. I need to make you something new if this is going to be meaningful. So in this particular chapter, we can look at it from a world's perspective. The natural thing is, oh, look at the girl. Oh, look at how the girl is so limited. But it's not the point of the chapter at all. Notice how it starts. It's actually a quite very simple chapter. In the first two verses, the focus is on the man. So men, you came in today. You might want to pray for yourself right now. Chapter 30, verse 1 says, And Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel. Up to this point, by the way, he has spoken to the whole congregation in the last two chapters about personal maintenance. The daily, the weekly, the monthly, the yearly upkeep. Those feasts that God wants you in. And understand, he wants every person to hear, I want an intimate and personal and loving relationship with you individually, intimately. I want you. That's what I want. And so for that, every person should be told that. But now this is a different, notice this is a very different procedure. At this point now, God is actually having Moses speak just to the leaders. And these are the guys who are your appellate judges. These are the people who are your regional judges. These are the people who now are getting a framework of how to judge things. And this is part of it here in legislature. And so he sits down with these leaders. And he says, boys, God has a message for you too. Verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord, swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now that we're speaking to leaders, and obviously the issue is people are going to go to court over the issue of broken vows, over a broken word. He says, you need to know this. Men you are going to be held responsible for what you say. Jesus says you will have to give an account for every idle word you speak. Doesn't that just make you a little nervous inside? It does for me. And here's the point. That God's community, God's society, is polar opposite of the world we live in, and we should expect that. So you understand, in God's society, there's this word called honor. It's a weird word. And what it means is that we actually hold ourselves with such integrity and such character that respect should be the product of it. We've replaced that word with another term. The term we've replaced it with is, you ready for this? I'm sure you've never heard it, self-esteem. Understand, what self-esteem means is, how do you feel about yourself? 
But understand, self-esteem has nothing to do with any character or moral obligation or any form of dignity. It only is about how you feel. And let me tell you how crazy it gets. The band that I was in, on tour in Canada. Now, I recognize Canada could be a little bit of a crazy place. But we're on tour and we're visiting a juvenile detention center. People that are somewhere between 10 and 18 years old that are doing hard time. And we met little Jimmy. Stabbed his student fellow student to death with a pencil the counselor sits and goes oh jimmy can i congratulate you on your creativity because she doesn't want him to feel bad about himself now understand jimmy has all kinds of things to reconcile jimmy has all kinds of things to deal with but just feeling good about listen it's okay to feel bad about yourself if you're doing something wrong If you can get it clean. Hey, you want somebody to tell you, hey, you got something on your face. So you can wipe it off. Oh, no, no, you're okay, I think. But my eyes aren't that good. Follow me on this. There's got to be someone who loves you enough. And this is what it says, that the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you get it? Now, that's something your friend intentionally tries to wipe you out. Now, you know, when we're about 12, 13, maybe that's the way your friends are. But we grow out. I think we grow out of that. But there's supposed to be that point where sooner or later, a real friend's a person who pulls you aside and goes, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. However you say it, that is not right. And understand here, God wants us to get back to honor. See, now, if what we really are honoring people for is getting somewhere in this society, getting more stuff, getting more popular, getting more whatever, and that's what the point is, if that's what the point is, well, then then it's all about self-esteem because it's how you feel about yourself. And it doesn't matter that if you have character because if you step on someone and lie and cheat and steal, but you get what you want, congratulations, you got it. If that's really what we're looking for. But God says, that's not how it plays in my house. We are not going to lie and cheat and steal and then try to make each other feel good about each other in that situation. And you go, oh, Pastor Tony, you're trying to make me feel guilty. No, it's okay to feel guilty if you are guilty. But then you should have something to do with that guilt. That's the whole point of Jesus. It's not to make you feel guilty. It's what to do with that guilt when you do. And this point of this is, listen, men, notice it doesn't say women here. And ladies, I'm not trying to pick on you or side you. I'm trying to talk about the men. What happened to a society where men stood up and were characters? Well, we are characters, but I mean of character. There's a difference. And it seems like the nicer a guy is, the more that you're going to be going, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you after? Isn't it true, ladies? Why is it that the last five or six Disney films all seem to have the cute guy as the bad guy? Somewhere down the line, maybe he comes around because the girl's free-spirited enough and her hair gets untangled or whatever, but sooner or later he gets it. But in the end of it, right, two sisters, they're fighting, I don't know, one's like really, really cold or something, and in there, hi, I'm the cute guy, he turns out to be bad. He turns out to be bad. Well, you get the idea. But so don't worry, ladies, you can fix them by the end of the the cartoon. And the, the, the point of it's this, that there's just, and you know where it's supposed to start? It's supposed to start with dads is where it's supposed to start. So let me ask you this, just out of, out of curiosity. How many of you in this room right now would say you have an intimate, and I don't mean in a weird way, but I mean in a sense of an, a healthy, close relationship with your earthly father? Could you raise your hand right now? Okay, look around. That's less than half. 
Thank you, Shantae. My daughter raised her hand, not just me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I didn't even look for the night. I was like, oh, whew, okay, good. <laughs> uh, please hear me. We live in a society without fathers anymore. And there's something that happens when you don't have that. Because then you have no category for a respectable man that you're not going to date. And that becomes really scary and unhealthy. And God says, look at This is the way this chapter is going to run. It starts with this. Men, grow a spine, get some honor, and become godly men. And godly men are going to be very different from any other man on the planet. Amen. It's just the way it works. And ladies, wouldn't it be nice to see godly men who don't bend to anything but Christ, who don't bow to anything but God, who stand tall, unwavering, and unyielding to anything but God's Holy Spirit, who seek to be men who aren't going to follow the... I mean, it seems like it's, it's almost the odd case today where somebody isn't delving into pornography. It seems like it's the odd case today with the guy that actually is seeking to actually grow in his walk with Christ in a way that he really wants to be totally available to just serve in whatever way God has for him. To be committed and expect him to stay committed? Could you imagine? I hope so. November 4th, it'll be 25 years for my wife and I. 25 years. She hasn't left now. She won't anymore. I'm pretty confident of it. The rest of the chapter follows on what it's going to look like to be that man. But listen, men, I want to grow to be that man more and more every day. And I'd like you to walk with me. I'd like you to walk with me in regards to our commitment to Christ. And then our commitment to each other to challenge each other to God's greatness. And then our commitment to viewing our girls, our sisters in Christ, like they should be treated with respect, dignity, and honor to treat those that are in authority like they should be, like God's put them there because that's what God says. Not to fight that. Isn't that hard, guys? Let's be honest. Because you know God's going to have you working for some idiot for a purpose. And then you're going to have to deal with what it really means to submit. Because submission isn't submission until you disagree. Guys don't have a problem with that word until they have to do it too. The rest of the chapter, listen, follows with two primary characters. Look at it with me. The first is in regards to a father's household. Did you notice that? By the way, it tells us this, in, and I just want to seg with this. Psalm 15, verse 1. Who may ascend or who may abide in your tabernacle? And remember, this is like what David wanted more than anything. Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly, who works righteousness, who speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against a friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord, and he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Find me a man who is a man of his word, Verse 3 says, Now, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth. The focus isn't on her. See, because the variable isn't her. 
See, there's, this is a situation where I want you to realize the agreement she'd be bound to more than likely would be a financial one. And if she can't pay it, who pays the fallout? Dad does. And what it says here is, if a girl makes a binding agreement while in her father's household, the day the father hears of it, he has the opportunity to nullify that binding agreement. He can unbind it. But to unbind that agreement, guess what he has to do? He has to, you ready for this? Step up. That's the problem here. The issue isn't the gal. She's a teen. She really wanted the iPhone 6. She signed a seven-year contract for more money, three times more than she makes in a month working at Pret-a-Manger or wherever it is. And she's, you know she's in trouble. In this culture, God says, a father can step up and say, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work. No, he's going to hand back the phone. She ain't playing this. But he has the right to do this. And the point is, where is a man who will step up when he sees concern? Where is the father's heart that will step up when he sees a girl getting herself in trouble like this? It's interesting, because if you look all the way back at the beginning in Genesis 3, where's the problem? God personally spoke with Adam, personally spoke with him. He had all the information. And when the enemy speaks, did you notice he never spoke to Adam? Did you notice that? But it tells us in Genesis 3 that she took an aid of the tree and it says, and gave to her husband who was with her. Which means while this enemy was lying to his wife, he stood there the whole time and didn't say a word. That's what it tells me. And he lied about God. He lied about his wife. And the man said, idly by till the only choice he had left was to bite of the fruit or lose her. Men, it's time to stand up and be men. This isn't about the daughter. This is about the father. Will a father be so distant and aloof that he'll have nothing to do with his family? Will he widow and orphan his family in such a way so that they're forced to survive on their own and he shows up to eat dinner and get back to work? Well, not in God's economy. Because God's not that kind of father either. And that's the point. In verses 6 then through 8. And by the way, did you notice, and I don't want you to miss this. Notice in verse 8, or verse 5. It says, none of her vows nor her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will release her. Did you notice that term? Because her father overruled her. Verse 6 through 8. If a wife takes such a... Notice, by the way, it says in verse 6, while bound to her vows. She can actually be in a horrible contract. Marry a man, and he can, upon learning of the contract, nullify the contract. Some gals would think, man, i got to get me married just for that. That means you got to take it back. Or any rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself. He has two responses. It has to be the day that he discovers it. It can't be like, well, let me think about that for a few days. And then I'll come around and decide. The point is simple. 
If the wife gets herself in some form of contract, the husband will be responsible to cover the shortfall. He has the responsibility to nullify that binding agreement. But he has to do it the moment that he's able to. On the day that he discovers it. It's interesting because in Proverbs 26, verse 13, it says, A lazy man says, There's a lion in the streets or in the road, a fierce lion in the streets. And the idea of it, I mean, like, what? How is that lazy? There's a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the streets. It says, the lazy man will say, we're just going to get it eaten alive. See, a lazy man looks and sees a problem. And this is what I've discovered. Men, and I'm going to pick on our gender for a moment, because I'm part of that too, so if I'm picking on anyone, I'm picking on me. I watch married couples, because we do a lot of marriage counseling, and it's fun to do in most cases. Of course, obviously, some cases it's it's a bit of a rough road. In that, it's interesting to watch the dynamic and how consistent the dynamic is when a problem occurs among a couple. The most common stereotype is if a problem occurs in front of them, the wife says, if I don't do something, it's just not going to get better. And the husband says, leave it alone, it'll fix itself. Oh, y'all know why you're laughing. Do you know who's laughing here? Married people, that's who's married right now. And that's why you see how few are in our fellowship, because they're the ones laughing. Okay, now hear me on that. A guy's like, man, i got to fix that. i got to step into that right now. i got to step into that. Husband's like, oh, don't worry. It's going to work its way out. Ignore it. It'll go away, like your teeth. And that's the problem. And here's the problem with this. As husband, you're like, oh, don't worry about well, then you work it out, honey. But the problem is you became one. And when you became one, you actually teamed up with each other against every challenge that came that comes to you, including whatever those things are. Because you didn't marry men. You didn't marry a girl so that she could clean your house. Although some of you, never mind, have been around your rooms. You didn't marry them to say, oh, man, I could use a better meal. (laughs) You married a girl because you wanted to be with her. No, prayerfully she could cook. If not, prayerfully you like to cook. Or get to know those takeout places really close to your house. Until it happens. My wife bakes. Her maiden name is Crocker, like Betty Crocker, and she means it. I'm telling you what. She didn't cook anything before. That made me grilled cheese. That was about it. But she bakes, and I'm not a sweet tooth. Oh, bless her heart. We are the perfect odd couple. Some people say, oh, well, we're too different. My wife's like, shut up. You're not as different as we are. You can make it work. Oh, maybe she says that more politely. <laughs> I would be the one to say, ah, oh, shut up. Please hear me, beloved. The challenge is simple here. The challenge is, men, if we stepped up, well, here's the point. God intends for us, men, as we grow, as we mature, to become coverers. That's the point. See, because the next part of it is what really blows this whole thing wide open, and we're almost done, so please hear me. You see, the point is this. What about the widow? Or the gal that's out. See, understand, in those days, it wasn't like, with all due respect, ladies, it wasn't like you all went out to university or you went out and got a job. You either were with dad or you went and got married. 
No, God never endorsed that. He just said that was the culture. And the point was, is there weren't a lot of the cases where a gal was kind of out on her own. But if the gal is out on her own, she's responsible. That's the point. You see, the difference is, when a gal is in her home with her father, she is under her father's covering. When a woman gets married, she is under her husband's covering. The moment she steps out from that, she is responsible for her own. Does that make sense? Then all y'all be good ladies and be women of character. Be women that uphold it. So the people look and go, you're different. And it ain't just because you don't put out. Or you don't advertise. Because there's a whole lot more to life than just trying to get affection from somebody on a train. Second look. So listen, he says, here's the deal. Men, hold up your word. First two words. The first two verses. Then, fathers, this is how you hold up your word as men. You put a covering over your children. Husbands, this is how you become men of valor. You put a covering over your wife. And if you want to step out from that covering, you're on your own. Are you following me on that? That's why this makes so much sense. Notice the two relationships. He didn't say all men had a right to tower over women. There were two relationships. What were those two relationships? A father and a husband. You're aware of the fact that that's the two ways God presents himself to us, right? You see, that's the point. You see, before we knew the Lord, we were in a binding agreement. And the binding agreement we were in is one where we were bound by our guilt, by our shame, by our sin, and we were bound to destruction. That's what we, and we volunteered for that. And if we want to try to stand out without any form of covering, then we have to pay our own price. But God is offering adoption. And because he's offering adoption, the Father in heaven is saying, I want to put you under my covering. And if I put you under my covering, any binding agreement you are bound to, if I say it's over, it's over. That's the rule. Will you come under my covering? But he also presents himself as a groom. So it isn't just God protect me, but God love me. This is exactly But if you put yourself under my covering as a husband, as the groom, well, then any binding agreement you are bound to, I have the right to sever. And let me just make it clear, before you even say yes to me, it's severed. It's part of the deal. So it isn't like God's ever going to wake up and go, oh, my goodness, what have you gotten yourself into? I didn't know you were going to do that. But the good news is it also means that God has a right to to get you out of those stupid choices you make, even while his. And you're like, what have I done? What have I made myself? And you're like, I'm in a really bad relationship. I've got some really janky friends or whatever. And God's like, you know, we're going to cut that right now. And you're like, but that's going to be weird. God says, yes. Now that we're aware of that, let's still do it. But God, I've had this tumor hanging off the side of me for, you know, it's like half of my hip. It'll be weird to have it gone. I'm so used to it. God's like, but would you like it gone? Do you see the point? Now, follow me on this. Men, in the last couple minutes, and I want to challenge you to this. And ladies, can I say that as ladies, be coverers to other ladies as well as you grow in Christ. But God is calling us men to lead. Now, if you think that that's a bad thing, ladies, you need to recognize God never gives authority without responsibility. We are never called to do anything without a mission. And our mission is to lead people to Jesus, to develop that relationship. And let me make it clear in this sense. 
listen to this, and I'll just make it in the simplest sense. When I'm trying to look at how this works, I started looking at what would it be like if mature men became covers? What would that look like? And this is what I see. In Job 14, 17, and in Psalm 32, 1, and this is just a few, a, a couple of, a, of several cases, in Psalm 85, too. One of the things that we see God covering is iniquity. David would say in Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In Psalm 85, 2, sin, it says you have covered all their sin. And understand the purpose for doing so was to connect in a right relationship with man. God knew that unless that sin be covered, they would never have the intimacy that God intended. So let me say that the first thing that I do as a coverer for my wife, for my children, and can I say as a pastor to seek to invest in you, is to connect. My heart is to connect you to Christ. To take that sin and lay it at the cross where God paid for every bit of it. Understand, that's what makes Jesus different from everyone else. They're not asking you to, everyone else says, clean up your act and maybe it'll be good enough. God says, I paid the price. I want you to accept my gift. And I want you to be connected. And if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you'll have an opportunity in just a moment. Second, not just to connect. In Psalm 91, verse 4, it tells us, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Now understand, it's a pretty simple metaphor. If you watch birds, often the way that they protect their young is they take them and they put them underneath and they hide them under their shadow of their wings. And the idea of it is, is that the same thing that could be a predator to that little baby chick ain't going to put up with mama hen. Now some of you, I think about, I think of Sister Ann's, like, don't be messing with mama hen over there. You messing with it. As a coverer, we're not only called to connect, but we are called to protect. If I invited you into my home 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, I'd take you to the farthest room because you would be my guest. The room with no windows. And there, in the farthest part of the room, I would lay out a table and I would prepare the meal for you in front of me. And as I would do so, the point was simple. You were the farthest place in my house from my front door. So that if any of your enemies were to show up, they'd have to get through me to get to you. That's the point. That's why it says in Psalm 23 about the Lord being our shepherd, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. See, the difference is I could invite you over and then be shocked that you have enemies. Jesus invites you in well aware of the enemies you have. And he says, they're going to have to get through me to get to you. That's the point. Because he knows that in the house, when you're invited into the home, you are under that person's protection because you're under that person's covering. Do you have anybody at all you have a heart to protect? Anyone at all? We could be walking down the street, and my girls already know this, as does my wife. If there's a person, and they're rather questionable in their behavior, and it seems erratic, they know to step on the other side where I'm in between that person and them. It is now routine. And they know that whoever it is is going to have to get through me first. Now understand, part of being a coverer is to have a heart to see people safe. Now, you recognize sometimes 
That's a problem. Do you know the most dangerous place to try to protect someone? A domestic violence case. You know why, right? Because the person that's beating them is the person they love. And you step in even to protect them, and they will both turn on you. And that becomes the problem when you're trying to to step into a situation where they love something that they shouldn't, that's killing them. And you're like, what are you doing? This lifestyle, this thing, this thing you're addicted to, this thing you're playing with or whatever, that friend you say is a friend, you should, yeah, you need to get out of that. And they're like, what do you think? You, who are you? To, who are you? Who do you think you are to tell me that? I'm like, I'm just trying to protect you. Oh, you're being sheltering. Yes, I am. But I tell you what, if the bullets were flying and somebody threw themselves on top of you for the moment, that's sheltering you too. Hey, it's a little uncomfortable and rather cramping. I'll grant you that. But you'll be thankful when you get up from it. Listen, as a coverer, I am called to connect you to Christ. As a coverer, I am called to protect. And then third and last in this. And Isaiah 51, 16, and this is referring back to the time we're at now in Numbers 30, which makes it an easy segue. It says, he spread a cloud out for covering a fire to give light to the night. God covered his people with a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day to direct them, to guide them. You see, it's to connect, to protect, and to direct. And that's what God calls me to you. My heart's desire is to connect you to Jesus, to protect you from the evil one and the world around you in regards to its system, and to direct you with his word. And ultimately, what I get out of that is that you become perfected. Now, not in the sense of not absent of flaw, but you reach your proper end. That's what the word means. When the bus says Old Kent Road to Tesco, you end up at Old Kent Road to Tesco. That's the point. And the trajectory that God has you at the end of it is in his arms, end of the deliverance, overflowing where you belong. Are you there? What's kept you? Can I say as we go to prayer, wouldn't it be beautiful if that's what we saw? Well, it can be. Why not be a part of the change? I think about the friends in Mark 2. There was a guy who was paralyzed. Perhaps you're familiar with it. They were going to get that guy to Jesus at any cost, but in this case, the cost was a roof. I think that's some coverers. That was uncoverers to cover, if that makes sense. They uncovered the roof to get him to Jesus. They connected remember that? And I think, oh God, make me that kind of coverer. Luke 10, about the most unlikely hero. A man traveling from old Jericho to new Jericho. It's the robber's alley, thieves' den, danger's den, and there he is. He gets robbed, beat, left for dead. The religious leaders walk right by him because we don't touch anything that dies because then we can't go to church. Ironic. But then there was the person that was a Samaritan. And to the Jews, that was the villain by choice. And he took that guy, if you remember, put him on his own animal, carried him to an inn, because they didn't have hospitals in those days. Put ointment on him, and he says, I'll be back in a few days. Whatever this guy spends, I'll pay for it. Does that sound like covering a guy? He did that. 
let me remind you, with a total stranger. You might think, well, how do I know this guy didn't deserve this? He didn't. He had a, he had a covering heart. But you know, my favorite story of a coverer is Luke 15. And many of us are so familiar with it. Because it was an idiot son who so wanted to get what he could get now that he forgot about what he could have in the long run. And he ran off and blew his dad's inheritance, spending on horrors, the party lifestyle. He was clubbing. He was looking good until the money ran out. And it's amazing because when the money runs out, so do your friends. And you ain't got the right friends. True? So finally he says, you know what? This is stupid. What am I doing? My dad's, my, the servants of my dad's house are better than this. You know what? I'm going to tell my dad. I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to tell him I'm not even worthy to be called your son. I'm aware of that. I've so shamed you. I've so made you a laughing stock among those around you. I've given other people a reason to say, why would I want to be that? Look at that. Look at his own son. Look at what his own son has done to shame him. And if you were the dad in the story or I was the dad in the story, it would be very different than the way Jesus tells it. Or would it? Would it, parents? It's the only place where God likens himself to anyone who runs. And the father sees the son from afar and he runs to meet him. And he covers him in a robe gives him the ring, which, by the way, is the family credit card. Puts some shoes on his feet, which tells you the boy's so bad he ain't got shoes anymore. He sold his trainers. You know you're addicted when you start selling your trainers. And the father says, now let's have a party. Welcome home, son. He doesn't call him my servant. He calls him his son. Like you left the covering boy, but the covering wasn't going to leave you. It was still here waiting. You want to step in, the covering's waiting. And can I say this as we pray? The covering is waiting. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ and you think this is some kind of religious jargon, some kind of politic, some kind of culture, counterculture, I wish it was a counterculture. So much more. There is a God, and my God adopts. Find that in another religion. My God openly declared he wanted you. When you hated him, he died on a cross. That's what my God did. And he presents himself as my love, my life, my light, my Lord. And he says, I want to cover you. Cover you in mercy and in grace and in love and in peace. I want to cover you so that you never have to run again. But that's your choice. Well, you could go out there and do it yourself. And say, hey, I'm I'm my own person. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force you. But the door is open for you. And that's the choice you need to make. If you have said yes to Jesus, might I say to you men, me included, it's time for us to step up and become coverers. The kind of men that are so of integrity that people draw straight things by us. Plumb lines. Ladies, the same for you. But that we all grow up to be the cover as God's called us to be. Because my God is, a, is the king of covering. And as we pray, 
That will be my prayer for us. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful time in your word. This lovely chapter, Lord, that is certainly a challenge. And I certainly know that there have been a lot of walks already asking how I'm treating my family, my wife, my children. How much time do I spend in prayer for them? But Lord, you know. You know my heart and you know the spine you've grown in me and you know, Lord, that, well, there's a part of us that's just innately aware of the fact that if we're going to stand, we're going to make enemies, no matter where we stand. So let it be for things so important and out of such love that it will not daunt us from making the choice. So, Lord, I pray right now, first, for the believers in this room, those that are claiming to be more than just human beings, but children adopted by you, accepting the gift of Jesus Christ, your disciples. For us, Lord, today, would you please inspire our hearts to grow, to become people of character. And when the world tries to tell us it's all about what we think about ourselves, could we actually, instead of seeking to just develop self-esteem, could we seek to develop God-esteem? Where we esteem you so highly, Lord, because we know that we're so infinitely loved and wanted and desired and engulfed by you that we can, how could we not feel great about ourselves? But in that, may we live like the family that you've adopted us into. Lord, forgive us for bringing in our beggarly and just ridiculous worldly ways into this family. And trying to actually think it's okay. But Lord, we give you permission to empty our hands. To empty our hearts and Lord, those things in our life that do not belong. So that you would replace them with things that are actually of substance transcending please Lord for every believer in here God make us people so that when others want to find something bad to say they have to make it up and I pray Lord right now in this, by the sound of this voice that there be anyone in this room or many who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ they may not have understood a lot I know that there's a challenge here in regards to culture but they do know this much you want to adopt them you want to love them you want to forgive them and give them perfect uh, innocence according to your gift at the cross, but that's their choice now. You've done all the work. Pray right now your Holy Spirit would confirm that in them. Give them the strength to say yes. And if that's you, I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And as I pray this prayer, I ask you to listen carefully. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say confidently and resoundingly, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I confess to you I'm a sinner. We all are, and I am too. I'm not perfect. We both know that. And you have offered, Lord, to break me free from the eternal punishment for my crimes in my heart. To release me from the bondage of the enemy. And to set me free. To love you to be declared innocent in your sight, adopted as your own, covered in your love. But for that to happen, you asked for my permission. You sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all my sins could be paid for. You did the work. 
He died just like Scripture promised. He was buried and rose again on the third day just like Scripture promised. And as this living, risen Lord desires to love me, declaring me innocent, having paid my price, my punishment, at my permission, and I say yes. You may not understand everything, but I know this much. If you really want to make me your own, wash me clean, declare me yours, then I'm going to say yes. So I say yes to Jesus' gift at the cross for my payment, for my punishment. I say yes to his resurrection and his lordship in my life. Say, have me now, I'm yours. Make me infinitely greater than I ever thought I could be in you, the way you intend. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I should give a resounding Amen. Amen.